0: So 1 Peter, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thank you very much, Jack. And uh, it'd be great to have that
1: passage open uh, along with the uh, outline you'll find on the inside of this sheet. One of the uh, risks of planning a series of sermons through a book of the Bible the way we do is that you only understand what the book is really about when you come to the end. And nowhere is this more the case than the letter of 1 Peter, because just as we arrive at the final few words, Peter tells us clearly and directly why he wrote and what his letter is all about. Just have a look with me at his final words again in 12 to 14. 14. With the help of Silas, he says, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. There is his purpose. Well, with a number of echoes of the opening verses, we are reminded in these verses of two truths and one command. Two truths and one command. That's what the bullet points are for if you're taking notes. The first truth is is that we have been listening all this time not to the wisdom of a mere man, but to the very words of God, written with all the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Peter means by, this is the true grace of God. What is the this referring to? I think the this is referring to the letter itself and the message of the letter. And so just think back over this term, all that we have received all that we have learned from 1 Peter has been a gracious gift of God. It is not something we're entitled to, and it's not something we can ignore, but it's something to be received as a gift. And I think as we look back over the term, this letter has changed us, hasn't it? We're not the same church as we were when we began, and that is God's gift to us. That's the first thing. The second truth is that this gift has come to people who really need it. It's come to people who really need it. That's because Peter is writing, you'll remember, to people in exile. The word chosen in verse 13 uh, takes us back to chapter 1, verse 1, where we began by thinking about God's elect. But what about this she who is in Babylon? Babylon. This seems like a new idea, and for most of church history, it was assumed that this is a kind of a coded reference to Peter's wife, but I think that's a bit strange, isn't it? It sounds a bit like, you know, er, uh, indoors, er, uh, the missus in Babylon, you know, she says hi, and the fact that he calls his, uh, Mark his son doesn't actually support the case, because this is not Peter's literal son, but it's almost certainly Mark, uh, John Mark of Acts 12 fame, uh, Peter's colleague. So who is she in Babylon? Well, in the Old Testament, Babylon was the literal place of exile, where God's people found themselves, as Edward said in that video, where they weren't meant to be. They were far away from home. They were outside the promised land and suffering and homesick foreigners. Now, in Peter's situation, Babylon is now the metaphorical place of exile, It is anywhere that is not home. And so for the Christian, who you'll remember from chapter 1, is chosen by God, born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the whole world is Babylon. So I think she who is in Babylon is referring to the church, possibly the scattered people of God all over the place in Babylon, or more likely, I think, Peter's own church community, wherever he happened to be, and we don't know where he writes this letter from. But it's a powerful reminder, isn't it, of the way Peter has already taught us to think about the world. Jesus was killed in Babylon by those who opposed God, and Peter has taught us to expect no better treatment. Babylon is the place of debauchery and idolatry, and it's under the judgment of God. Babylon is the world of dead hopes and fading dreams, isn't it? The place that is built on the grass that gets burnt up rather than the rock uh, of Christ. And so Babylon is the place of testing and trials and temptation in the little while of our pilgrimage. Babylon is not home. And as soon as Babylon feels like home, you're in big trouble, which is why his readers need this letter urgently. Now, interestingly, the mention of Silas in verse 12 subtly reinforces the urgency here. Previously, I assumed, along with most people, that Silas was Peter's secretary, writing down Peter's words in the famously high-quality Greek of the letter. The assumption was that Peter, being a Galilean fisherman, could not have written this letter, and so he needed to employ someone better educated, and, and that's Silas. Having done some reading on it this week, I think Silas was actually not a professor, but a postman. You can ask me more about this over coffee if you're interested, but the picture that I think emerges is not so much of Silas dipping his pen in the ink to compose the next line of excellent Greek, but tying up his shoelaces, ready to hit the road, because that phrase, through Silas, is actually used in the New Testament for a deliverer, a herald, a courier, rather than a secretary. And so the idea is that Peter's message has got to go out urgently to the scattered churches in those five places he mentioned in verse 1, because this is what the exiles need. This is what we need to hear if we are in Babylon. That's the second thing. So first thing, it's a gift from God. Secondly, it's what we need to hear in Babylon. And this brings us to the third thing, which is a single command in verse 12. Look at it with me. This is the true grace of God. And here's the command. Stand fast in it. See, what do these exiles need to hear? They need to hear the message, stand fast. Continue to be gripped by the gospel and never give up. Now let me give you an illustration, which I hope is going to help us, just to tie all this together. A few weeks ago, Uh, Chloe, one of our trainees, lent me her noise-cancelling headphones. Now, I am a late adopter when it comes to technology, I must admit, and I always thought the point of headphones was not to cancel noise, but to actually produce noise. But it turns out if you really want to hear the music with crystal clarity or if you want to enjoy pure silence, you don't just need the noise, but you need to filter out, you need to get rid of the external sounds like traffic and chatter and, in our offices now, builders' power tools. You need to blot those noises out. And you probably know this already, but as you see the young kind of folk wandering around with these big headphones on, that's what is going on. Now, how do they work? This is the clever bit. What happens, and again, probably most of you know this, but it was very interesting to me, Uh, what happens is that the headphones actually gather the external sounds and play an inverse sound wave into the headphones. I don't understand that, but someone will explain it afterwards, I'm sure. And so they are noise-cancelling. They cancel out the noise of the outside world, not just by kind of giving you a muffler, but by actually projecting the opposite sound into your ears. They are very clever. Put them on your Christmas list. And I think that is a brilliant way of thinking about this letter of 1 Peter, Because this is what he's been doing from first line to the last. He's been subverting the noise of Babylon. He has flipped the lie on its head that tells us that the good life in Christ is not good. He's turned on its head the lie that we tell each other that we don't deserve to suffer, that we should stand on our rights, that following Jesus is too costly, that we should live for what is perishable that we should please ourselves at the expense of others, that God can't possibly take care of us. He's turned all of these lies on their heads and he's silenced them with the truth of the gospel. Now, in a moment, we're going to see the source of those lies, but I think that's what Peter has been doing. See, the world we live in is not spiritually neutral. We cannot simply plod along as Christians, rejoicing in the good things that Jesus gives us in the Bible, we cannot simply plod along, we cannot drift. There is a deadly battle for the truth raging around us. And the songs of Babylon are constantly playing in our ears. And so, what Peter does, he gives us the opposite sound a word of God from heaven to grip us here so that we can withstand Babylon and so that we can stand firm on the day of judgment. Well, I hope that's a helpful introduction as we come to the end of the letter of what Peter has been on about. But he's still got some things to teach us. And what is the final lie of Babylon that Peter wants to neutralize with the truth? Well, it's one that he's been talking about throughout the letter. It is that suffering and the good life cannot exist together. And Peter wants for one final time to show us that they can. And he wants to pump our ears full of the good news that to follow Jesus along the path of suffering and glory is the good life itself. And he's going to do this to two groups of people first to the leaders in the church, and then to the church as a whole. So, follow with me, leaders following Jesus, first of all, in verses 1 to 4. Look at verse 1 with me. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. When Peter refers to himself as a witness of Christ's suffering, he's not simply saying that he was an eyewitness to the cross. In fact, he probably wasn't, because Peter was actually cowering away from the cross at that point. But what he witnessed was the entire shape of Jesus' life. He witnessed Jesus coming to this earth, the constant battle with Satan and demons, the alienation from his family, the rejection of his people, the hatred of the Jewish leaders, the misunderstandings, the plots, the betrayals, the arrest, the injustice. Peter witnessed all of that. But when he says witness, he is saying more than just that he saw something. You may know that the word witness is the Greek word martyr. And it means not just to see, but to speak of what you have seen. And not just to speak of what you have seen, but to speak of what you have seen in the face of hostility. And we've seen that throughout 1 Peter, haven't we? That to witness to Christ is always to do it in the face of the the comeback from the world and from the devil. And so to be a witness of Christ's sufferings is to share in Christ's sufferings. This is true of everyone who follows Jesus but Peter is now going to show us that it's especially true for those who lead others who follow Jesus why is that the case because leading others makes you vulnerable particularly vulnerable to the same forces that killed Jesus and no one understood this better than Peter of course Peter took a long time to understand this for quite a long time he objected to the whole idea that Jesus was going to suffer and he thought that leadership was a glorious thing. But listen to the last words that Jesus spoke to Peter recorded in John 21. Three times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, and three times he commands him to shepherd his sheep. Listen to the final time, John 21. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger and dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So Peter learned to that point that what it meant to witness to the sufferings of Christ was to join Christ and to suffer in the same way and from the same forces who killed Jesus. And so in verses 1 and 2, he's saying, to the elders, the shepherds, the overseers, three interchangeable terms used for leaders in the New Testament. He's saying, this is your calling too. If you're going to witness to Christ, if you're going to lead Christ's flock, there is no nice, spiritually neutral sort of Switzerland. You are going to do this in Babylon. And every inch of this world is claimed by Jesus and counterclaimed by the enemy and so Christian leadership is going to be a battle every step of the way. So if you're going to teach the word you're going to feed Jesus' sheep it is not just the case of pumping out some nice interesting sermons uh, it's more like that game of whack-a-mole do you remember that game where you, you the sort of mole pops his head up and you whack it down? That's what teaching the word is like you're going to put your head above the parapet you're going to seat fit and Satan is going to come and whack your head down into the ground to silence the word because that's what he does if you're going to lead a church to live out that morally beautiful visibly distinct corporately ordered life that counters a disordered world well you're going to be hated by the world and so leading means painting a target on your back and inviting the attack of babylon it means actually going over the parapet. And leading the way into battle it means holding up the shameful banner of the cross and drawing to yourself the scorn of the world in other words shepherding the sheep as Jesus taught elsewhere means dying for the sheep it means putting into practice every day that thing that we've seen again and again you're good at my expense it means dying like Jesus But it also means, in verses 2 and 3, serving like Jesus. Have a look at it again. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, if being a shepherd or overseer means giving up my good at your expense and dying to self, then it's not a surprise that Babylon will come into the church and offer an easy alternative. Babylon will speak to us and say, here is a way of leading that is less costly, that is less difficult. And what Peter is doing in verses 2 to 3 is showing us what Babylonian church leadership looks like. What it will look like if we switch off the gospel noise in our headphones and we just listen to the soundtrack of the world. In other words, what he's giving us here is a reverse image of Christ like shepherding. It is shepherding or leadership that says, not your good at my expense, but my good at your expense. And he spells this out using three pairs of contrasting characteristics. Firstly, verse 2, leaders would in that case lead begrudgingly, not willingly. The phrase Peter uses there, literally under compulsion, he uses, uh, is used by Paul rather when Paul challenges the Corinthians about their financial giving. You may remember, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. You're not to give begrudgingly. And Peter is using that same expression here with regard to the giving that leaders do as they serve others. See, when the church is under pressure from the world, the temptation is to draw back and to protect yourself, to put your head below the parapet, to work to your job description, to minimise risk and loss for the sake of the church, to protect yourselves. But God's flock, Peter says, deserves to be led by people who are cheerful givers of themselves, who are energetic, active, willing, giving of themselves. That's the first thing. Secondly, still in verse 2, leaders are not to serve greedily, but eagerly. Now, this is not to say that churches should not pay their pastors. Just thought I'd throw that in. In fact, the practice of financially compensating church leaders to free up their time is well established in the New Testament, but it comes with a warning not to turn that good gospel strategy into a mere job or career choice. Why not? Because then the good shepherd becomes the hired hand. And Jesus warns us against such people in John 10. Such a person is a mere employee who cares more for his salary than for the sheep. Instead, they are to serve willingly with the internal motivation and joy that comes from following in the footsteps of the good shepherd. And so it is right that churches pay their leaders and pay them sufficiently, but the motivation for ministry must always be to give and not to get. Thirdly, verse 3, leaders are not to lord it over those entrusted to them, but to be examples, literally types or patterns for the flock. After all, verse 2, it is God's flock, not theirs. The pastors and elders are sheep too. They are part of the flock. They're not actually separate from the flock. And they're accountable to the chief shepherd who died for the flock and owns the flock. And so in a sense, this is Jesus' flock. And just for a little while, he picks some people to kind of play the role of shepherd for a little while. But he is the chief shepherd. And I wonder if at the heart of some of the leadership scandals that have rocked a number of churches in recent years is the fact that pastors have lost sight of this that they've lost sight that they are part of the flock. And like the bad shepherds of the Old Testament, they have used the flock to feed their own status and identity rather than giving up those things for the sake of the flock. Now just think with me now, why Peter says this as he comes to the end of his letter? Remember that the letter would be read out to the whole church. Both leaders and church members would be listening to this. And so why does he end on this note? Well, it's because, of course, these churches are in Babylon. And what churches need in Babylon are leaders who are courageous and who will resist Babylon and protect the church. But also, what Babylon needs are healthy churches. Remember chapter 2, 11, and 12, which is one of the key sections of the letter, tells us that each healthy local church is at the heart of God's mission to the world. Visibly distinct, morally beautiful, corporately ordered, this life of the church is to be a countercultural alternative and offering hope to a dying world. And so. Churches in Babylon need leadership to protect them from Babylon, but Babylon need healthy churches to give them hope. And if the churches of God are to do what they are to do, they're to be led by pastors, leaders, elders, overseers, all the same word, who will gather and pastor and feed and defend the flock so the church can thrive and survive. Emma and I are really enjoying David Attenborough's Planet Earth 3 at the moment. And it's a beautiful thing, beautiful photography, but every single one is a sermon on what this planet needs. What does this planet need, according to David Attenborough? Well, it needs us to net zero and stop chopping trees down and all those kind of things, and I'm sure he's right. But what this planet really needs, and I didn't hear this from David Attenborough, I heard this from Peter, What this planet really needs are courageous men who will lead families and lead churches. Men who will actually hold on to the truth, resist the lies of Babylon, do that in the home, in the workplace, in the world, in the church, do it for the long haul, and suffer the consequences. Men who will stay in a place like Lancaster for the long term to see a local church raised up and people sent out into the mission field. Men who will lead teams, as we prayed for earlier. Men who will go and plant and revitalise churches elsewhere and perhaps cross into different cultures to do that. Witnessing to the community, bearing the gospel and bearing the shame of Christ. I'm so thankful that we have men in this church who do that, Because leadership is a call to die. But we need more. There's a moving moment in The the Hobbit. I find it moving. uh, When Bilbo Baggins pleads with Gandalf. He says, I just want to sit quietly for a moment. And Gandalf says, you've been sitting quietly for far too long. It's a challenging moment, isn't it? Don't you feel the the desire just to sit quietly, not to face the terror of the mission field out there. And so I need to hear that challenge. And I want every man in this room to hear it too. The planet needs you to step up and lead. But don't forget the reward. Look at verse four. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory That will never fade away so those who share in Christ's sufferings will also share in his glory Peter has been emphasizing this throughout the letter that this is the shape of the Christian life but here he applies it specifically to the leaders he's saying you're gonna suffer but you will receive a reward as well and there's a lovely word just behind this this unfading crown of glory it's a word that comes from the amaranth flower which it has these bright red petals uh, which don't fade for the whole life of the flower it's a beautiful picture isn't it that you receive this this glorious crown that actually will never fade because everything else in this world will fade and often ministry can feel that there's no reward you don't know what the what the feedback is you don't know what the cash value of your work is. But as we lay down our lives in service of Jesus, something is happening in heaven. This, this crown is being prepared and the blood, sweat and tears are picked up by Jesus and added to your reward. So you know that your work in this life has not been in vain. Well, that's what he says to leaders. Leaders are to join with Christ in his suffering. This is what the church needs. This is what Babylon needs, because Babylon needs well-led churches. And so there is a call there, isn't there, to us, to pick up our cross, to step up, and to lead. But it's not only leaders who are to do this. And in the final verses of the body of the letter, Peter encourages the whole church to do exactly the same, and a church following Jesus like this will be humble and hopeful in 5 to 11. Peter wants his readers to adopt a posture of humility in four sets of relationships. Now these, uh, these final verses, are, uh, there's, there's a lot going on here, uh, but I think we can boil it down to these four relationships in which humility is the theme. First is humility from younger to older. Look at verse 5. Younger men, literally younger ones, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, there's actually no men in that verse. It's simply you who are younger, which parallels elders in verse 1. And so in that context, I don't actually think Peter is just talking to young men. I think he is contrasting the elders and the youngers In other words, he's talking about the relationship between the leaders and the wider church. Because in order for leaders to lead, followers must follow. And that fits, of course, with the theme of submission that we've been thinking about. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, Christians must cheerfully accept our God-given position. And for most Christians, that means following the shepherds who follow Christ. Part of being a godly member of the flock is to follow the leaders, that Christ has given to us. I think that makes best sense of it in the context. And that means that if one of the ways Babylon infiltrates the church is when leaders become little dictators, another way is when the congregation become unleadable. In other words, there is to be mutual humility between leaders and led. That is a healthy pattern for a church, mutual humility. But secondly, this mutual humility is to be the posture of every relationship in church. Look at how he continues. All of you, very emphatic, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The concept of clothing oneself in mutual humility is a very powerful picture, isn't it? I just wonder if Peter has in his mind's eye that moment, which is a, a big mind shift for Peter in John 13, where Jesus took off his outer clothing and he put on a towel, the towel of the lowliest slave, and he washed his disciples' feet. And you may remember Peter objected to this because he thought that Christ's glory could not coincide with such humility. And he had to know that humility was Christ's glory. And I just wonder if that is the picture he has here that clothing ourselves with such humility, this is how we are to treat each other. And it's a clothing that never goes out of fashion because in God's eyes, he opposes the proud, but he always gives grace to the humble. God hates pride, he loves humility. And just think about how practical this is. Just imagine how many scraps in churches, how many splits and schisms, how many resignations of members and leaders, how much burnout and heartache and ruined witness could be avoided if Christians clothed themselves with this mutual humility. This is how we treated each other, very powerful. Thirdly, this posture of humility is to define our relationship with God. Verse 6... Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The phrase, the mighty hand of God, is used only here in the New Testament, but it comes out of the Exodus accounts of the Old Testament, where God displayed his mighty hand in delivering his people and taking them up from the wilderness into the promised land. Now, why is that significant? Because it means as you humble yourself before God's mighty hand, in whatever circumstances he has put you in, there is no safer place to be. This is about 4 verse 19 again, isn't it? Committing yourself to your faithful creator and continuing to do good. It's about trusting God. And when hard things happen, we are tempted to think, why this, why me? Why has this thing happened to me? What have I done to deserve this? Why is God allowing this to happen? And of course, those are all forms of pride. Humility means trusting God, allowing God to be God, trusting him in absolute dependence in his goodness and his power, knowing that according to his timing, he will in time lift you up and bring you into the promised land. And so it means, as we've seen before, we get to choose our attitude. Instead of allowing events to swallow us up in anger and bitterness, we can actually accept the situation that God has put us in, not as the work of the enemy, but as part of God's good plan to save us. And then look at this, very practical. Look at what humility before God does to anxiety, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you now what kind of anxieties do you think Peter has in mind here well think back to what he said so far in the letters about these readers these readers are suffering loss of status loss of career loss of dignity loss of respect in society because of their allegiance to Christ some of them are suffering a loss of family loss of standing in the community loss of friendship loss of livelihood, and around the corner was certainly coming loss of life and freedom. There's plenty there to be anxious about, isn't there? And I don't know about you, but that puts my anxieties into perspective. But why do you suddenly move from humility to anxiety without a blink? Because sometimes anxiety is a branch of pride, Anxiety comes when we believe that God doesn't care, that he's not big enough to help you, that he's not enough for you. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic. Obviously, there's, there's lots of different ways where you get anxious and different experiences of anxiety. But just look at what Peter says here. If you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, you can leave everything with him. And the word cast there is a graphic description of this. It's a reminder of Peter's past life. It's the word used for casting fishing nets into the sea. The sea is a big place. God is a big God. And you can cast all your anxieties into the hand of a God who is both big and gracious. God is bigger than an ocean of troubles. Humble yourself before him. Accept the situation you're in. And cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And so our relationships with leaders is to be humble. Our relationships with each other is to be defined by humility. Our relationship with God is to be one of humility. But there is a fourth relationship in which humility is required. And this is a surprise. Look at verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Well, it might be a surprise to see the devil mentioned in the context of humility. It might also be a surprise to see that Peter has waited right to the end to mention the devil. This is the first time he's been mentioned. And yet, just as with Babylon, we can go back through the letter and actually realise his presence has been there all along. In fact, he has been the real problem. And it's now that Peter calls him out. Some of you may know that the staff team and the builders working on site um, have been living for a little while with a bad smell. Not only a bad smell, a really bad smell, but... Various things have been eaten and destroyed and a huge mess has been building up in certain parts of the building and noises have been heard. And I'm not talking about baby grubs, although they can, they're possibly uh, capable of all of those things, bad smell, noise and mess, but it wasn't, wasn't them behind this. Well, it took a man from the council to come and lift the carpets and the floorboards and to see what was really going on beneath the surface. And it turns out that we have rats. Yes, Morland's church family, we have a rat problem, which is why the children are over at Dallas Road School, in case you're wondering. We're keeping them safe from the rats. Don't panic. It's all being sorted. But that is what Peter is doing here, isn't it? Right at the end of the letter, he is actually lifting the floorboards. He's lifting the carpets... And he's saying, look, behind what is sometimes a polite and peaceful society and sometimes a debauched and violent society, there is this spiritual reality. This is what has been going on all the time. This is what accounts for the bad smell in our society. And it's not a pretty sight. When you lift the lid on our society, it really does stink. And so we can go back through the letter. And I encourage you to do this. And you can read back over all the hard stuff that's being thrown at Christians. And you can now understand that behind it all is the devil. That Christians being persecuted is not just an accident of history. It's an outworking of that ancient spiritual warfare the fact that our society is so much like Peter's society, the fact that there is this anti-God movement, the fact that, as he says in verse 9, all over the world Christians are suffering this, this is not an accident. This is because behind it are the forces of darkness operating unseen all the time. And we have to learn to get a whiff of this and to recognize it. Well, what is the solution for little churches and little Christians like us? Well, verse 9, he says, resist him. Now, how do you do that? Because the image of the devil as a roaring lion is powerful and scary, isn't it? Surely, that kind of enemy needs to be met with strength. At the very least, we need to learn a little bit about spiritual warfare, don't we? You know, sort of holding up a cross and maybe a bit of garlic and exorcisms, that kind of thing. How does the devil fight against us? How do we win the war? Well, let's think about this. I mean from the Bible, not from the horror movies. In fact, no one is ever going to make a horror movie of this because it's it's actually so ordinary and unimpressive when you think about it. See, think back with me to the very beginning When Satan first made his appearance in human history, Adam and Eve, you'll remember, were given everything they could ever have wanted in the garden, including a perfect, unbroken relationship with God, and everything materially, physically, relationally right. But you'll remember that their enjoyment of that situation was tied to one condition. Just have a think in your own mind what that condition was what was the one condition God gave them in the garden? It was to trust his word. Trust his word. And the devil came, slithering like a snake, not prowling like a lion, but the same devil, and tempted Adam and Eve with what sin? With pride. With the pride that said, we know better than God, We're going to put our will over God's. God doesn't want what is best for us. He's trying to hold us down. Eat the fruit and you will be like God. The original sin was a sin of pride. And in that moment, Adam and Eve were given the choice of their lives. And I want you to see very clearly, it is a choice between pride and humility in relation to God's word. So the choice the devil gives us is to listen to his lies and deny God's word or, verse 8, to keep self-controlled and alert. To submit to Satan's word or to submit to God's word in humility and dependence, acknowledging that his way is best. In other words, to stand firm in faith. In other words, how you resist the devil is not with garlic and crosses and strength but with the humility to believe the word of God. And I think this is very practical and very important for us because in our particular time in history, the noise that is coming to us from Babylon is pride. That is Satan's basic theme tune. And the noise cancelling headphone, humility. Humility before God. That is spiritual warfare. It's always been the way. So, what will this look like in practice to hear the lion's roar? Well, sometimes the lion's roar will be terrifying. It'll be the Emperor Nero. It'll be Chairman Mao. It'll be some other vicious dictator who wants to crush Christians as quickly as possible. But much of the time it won't be like that. Much of the time it will be in the subtle, pervasive, quietly toxic drift and orientation of society, which just gradually puts man's word over God. The Enlightenment, 200 years of putting man's word over God. The Pride Movement. Pulling man's word over God. Our current obsession with self-expression. Man's word over God. And so what does it look like to be devoured by the devil? And the word Peter uses is a, is, a, is a violent word, just kind of glugging someone down, just swallowing someone's hole. But it doesn't look like that. It means to simply stop trusting God's word. And what Satan wants, more than anything, yeah, sometimes he wants to obliterate churches from the face of the map, but he's equally content for churches simply, politely, quietly to stop trusting the word. And he can have all of the physical aspects of church and people coming into a building and doing all sorts of things, but if we no longer trust the word and put God's word first, then Satan has won. And some of us who have friends in the Church of England can see that this is exactly what is happening now over the issue of sexuality. And it's a terrible thing. It's, a, it's an ugly whiff of Satan that he's got some of those churches and some of those leaders exactly where he wants them. To say, we're not going to be distinctive. We're going to just believe exactly what the, word, the world says. And it's a terrible place to be for those who want to stand firm at the moment. And so what does it mean to resist the devil? It means stand firm in faith, humbly trust the word, even if that means pain and suffering. But you do this in verse 9, conscious that you're not alone. Have a look at the logic of verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. I was in a Zoom call the week before last with a bunch of pastors from all over the world as part of our pillar network. And what happens in these Zoom calls, there is no gospel at all. And then the third one, from former communist Albania. A new church, a tiny little church, reveling in the newfound freedom to speak. But he said, what we're battling is this influx of Western materialism and cults who are filling the vacuum left by communism. So three very different situations. Outright persecution in Nepal, false teaching in Zambia, Western materialism and cults in Albania. But the point of verse 9 is whatever form it takes, these are all manifestations of the satanic strategy to silence the word and for Christians and churches to give up. And so remember, you're not alone. But this is the way Satan is working throughout history and throughout the world. Well, what does that mean for us here today as we conclude this letter? How do we know if we have taken this letter to heart? How do we know if we are humble before God? Well, I think what Peter wants to do in this letter is kick away everything that we depend on until we are left holding on to this great gospel. And if we are left holding on to the gospel, we are left holding on to real hope. And that brings us to our final point. Have a look at verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter concludes the body of the letter by going back to where he began in chapter 1 with a strong note of hope. Throughout the letter, glory has been a shorthand for the reality that we will have in Christ but we cannot see yet. Glory is the kind of catch-all phrase for everything that Jesus has accomplished on the cross and is guaranteed by his resurrection. And this guarantee is expressed in those four descriptions of what God will do in verse 10, a kind of quadruple lock of absolute security. First, he will restore us. An image taken from what has been ripped and torn and broken, mended to perfection. Second, he will strengthen us. The idea there of being being placed on a firm foundation, placed on that rock of Jesus. Thirdly, God will make Christians who feel weak now feel utterly invincible then. And finally, God himself will make us steadfast with eternal security to be revealed at the last days. It's kind of belt and braces approach, a total recreation. And so those who hold on to the world and those who persecute God's people and the devil and all his powers will see that in the end, It is God alone who holds power in this universe. Babylon will come crashing down. And in its place, God will establish a kingdom that will never end. For those who cling to the cross will be vindicated. Which I think leaves us with one question. Did Peter's readers listen to this? Did they take the letter to heart and use it to neutralize the soundtrack of the world? Did they commit themselves to their faithful creator? Did they resist the devil and his lies? Did their leaders lead courageously or did Babylon infiltrate the church? Did they make it? Did the letter work? Well, there's some compelling historical evidence that it did. Soon after Peter's letters, because you'll know he wrote too, the pressure intensified against the church. If you read Second Peter, you'll see that the world is now full of scoffers and false teachers. And society is plunging more and more deeply into that flood of dissipation that he talked about here. And the state is now crushing churches and seeking to annihilate the gospel from the face of the earth. Many were burned and butchered by the state-sponsored terrorism. And Peter himself, so tradition tells us, would be imprisoned and crucified upside down. And so for a little while the, the story goes dark. And very little is known about these churches in exile in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Of one Peter, that is its message to us, to be humble and hopeful. And let's pray that we will do likewise.